Father, we ask for your blessing on your word as it goes forth. Teach us more about your kingdom and the parables that are there. We, we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to really discern the times in which we live, but also be prepared for the times which are coming, the time of your kingdom being here on earth. You have so blessed us with this information, information directly from the throne room. And we would ask that it would be transformative. We would not simply be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers as well. So thank you, Father, for it. Teach us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. There are other parables listed in Scripture. For instance, chapter 21 and 23 of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to hit a couple more. And it's always prefaced by or predicated on, and the kingdom of God is like... And he gives a a teaching on that. We've gone over the sower of the seed, the wheat and the weeds, and the mustard seed. And now we're going to tackle the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl, and the net. And we're just going to pick it right up in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 33. And he told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, this parable is also in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 19. And this is talking about, again, the kingdom of heaven. And it, it kind of spells out for us that there is a lot of flour that this woman is using. Uh, the flour that is being talked about here is 22 liters or 60 pounds of flour. Now, the, the bag of sugar, how many pounds is that? Four pounds? Five pounds of sugar. So do the math. That's 12 bags about the size of flour. Flour weighs less than sugar. But if you imagine having all of that, and she took just a little bit of yeast when she added water and probably eggs to the dough, and she threw that yeast in there, how big a pile of dough would she have had? Monstrous. It, It would have been probably the size of this stage. And the point is, the yeast that is used, it's just a little packet. If you go and get some brewer's yeast in that little yellow and red packet, and you shake it, and you open it up, and you put it in warm, not hot water, not cold water, just warm water, and you stir it around in there. I've always loved the smell of yeast. And then you pour it into the flour batch, and you stir it around. And I remember my grandmother, uh, she lived on a farm, and she'd make homemade bread. Whenever I'd come home from school, she lived with us for a while, and I'd smell that. Oh, walking into the house, it'd just be so great. And then she would allow the loaves to raise. She'd put the, the bread tins, she'd put them up on the stove and cover them with a towel. And I would ask her, well, why are you doing that? She actually taught me. She goes, you're going to help me make bread. And I go, okay. And she, she goes, now knead it like this. And she showed me how to knead the bread and she'd stick it up there. And I would marvel how it would just be this little tube of bread and would come back in a few hours and it had raised to double the size in there. So it was pretty interesting. Now the people back then would have been familiar with this. I'd like to know how many people in here regularly make bread? So many of you. You see, this is, this is an art that's kind of lost. Now, how many have made bread? Oh, there you go. Now, so you know exactly what I'm talking about here. If you add that yeast, and, and it, of course it rises, and it makes a wonderful little dish. So the people back then certainly would have understood what was going on because they had to make bread daily. 
And so then our job is to decipher what is being talked about here because most of the time in Scripture when you use yeast, when you talk about yeast of any kind, the yeast is representative of evil because Jesus talked about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, which is the evil that the Pharisees would walk around with, the things that they would teach, the ways that they would act. Yeast is just bad. But is that what is going on here? Well, first, First Corinthians chapter 5 or 6 says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may may have a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So there's an example that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of yeast being used in a bad context with a bad connotation. But the way that it is used here in context, if you remember what was used right before this, you had the little mustard seed, tiniest of all the seeds of the herbs in the garden. And you plant that and it becomes the mightiest of the herbs, almost like a small tree and the birds come and land in its branches. And I talked about that as well. The birds, are they representative of evil or not? And we came to the conclusion through scripture that the birds landing in the branches are the nations of the earth. And so that is how the church will grow and all the nations of the earth will benefit from it. This is just like that. The little yeast that is being used here is not something that is considered bad. It's considered that is the kingdom. That is what God has done. It's like sowing the seed and it produces 160 or 30 times that which is sown. Same thing with the yeast. You only need a little bit and it permeates the entire dough, and it grows and becomes huge. You know, Christianity is the largest and fastest-growing religion in the world. But if you read some of the news media accounts of that, they say, no, at all, Islam is growing much. No, it's not. It's Christianity. The only thing that they have said about that is, in the United States, our Christian heritage is declining. We're becoming like a postmodern society where uh, do you guys are you guys familiar with the name gunger he is a was a christian artist and he there are several songs that uh, a few songs that he made popular him and his wife and i just read that he became an atheist and he would go him and uh, stephen crowder would go around and they they have this particular type of prayer that was practiced by Augustine and some of the early church fathers, and it's really not a good form of prayer. And he came to a conclusion that the stories in the Old Testament, like Adam and Eve and like Noah and the boats and all of those are really not true. And he went all the way, and he recently said that he is an atheist, which was a shock to his wife, and she's trying to deal with that. And they both came out of a large uh, Christian church. Uh, They were the worship leaders there, and now he has completely walked away from the faith, and, and that's because he looks at Scripture in a different way, and we want to make sure we're holding to the truth of Scripture. And people in this country are walking away from that truth. Uh, And I talked to you about like Bethel Church and some of the others, and even the style of worship songs are becoming more like those who practice religion in the Eastern uh, part of our world, the Eastern uh, religions. Like, for instance, the chanting 
that goes on in meditation. Have you noticed that some of the worship songs that are out there, they repeat the same phrase over and 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 you just go, what? what is the point of that? You know, they do that in meditation where they, they just get this simple syllable or this phrase and they just say it over and over. You get the point. And some of the Christian songs are getting like that. And the idea of this contemplative prayer that is um, an ancient style of prayers where you clear your mind. Does the Lord want us to clear our minds or does he want us to be focused you have to ask yourself that question from Scripture. He wants us to be focused. The things that you're supposed to think about, he didn't say, clear your mind and think about nothing. He said, no, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is noble, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians 4.8, he told us to think, to meditate on his word, but meditation from the Eastern religion and from this contemplative prayer and also the emergent church is clear your mind. And as you clear your mind, God can speak to you. And it's not biblical to do that. And so there is this move towards postmodernism in our society to walk away from the truth of Scripture, to walk away from absolute truth, to walk away from the traditional morality that would have, and we can make up our own morality as long as it doesn't fall in the line of the Christian God. Every other morality is okay except that which Christ has given us. And that's where we're going as a society. And all these things that we consider right or wrong, they're now becoming muddied. You know, we're, we're teaching kids that they can be a different sex when they're not. We're teaching people that they can get so offended that words, and I talked to you about this before, words are violent, so you're not allowed to speak those words. And there's this idea of controlling what you say and how you act. And we're doing that, becoming a post-Christian nation. Where in some of these other countries around the world, they say Christianity is going to the east and to the south which is Christianity is growing in China. It is growing behind what would be known as the Iron Curtain, the old Iron Curtain in some of the communist countries that are there. Also in South America, South America is becoming hugely Christian. Now, in Africa as well, hugely Christian. The only problem with that is they don't know what proper Christian doctrine is. There is a movement down in South America. Brazil has the largest Catholic population of all the South American countries. The one that rivals that is Pentecostalism. Now, there's oneness Pentecostalism that only believes that there is one God and he, he manifests himself in three different ways. That's called oneness Pentecostalism. There's not the Trinity. It's just this one guy who shows up as the Son, then as the Holy Spirit, then as the Father, and he puts on these different masks, so to speak. Of course, I have a problem with that at the baptism of Jesus. You had Jesus there. You had the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. And you had the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you had the Trinity right there. 
But some, even right down the street, there's a church that doesn't believe that, that there is a trinity. And so in South America, that type of Pentecostalism is taking off. And then the radical nature of some of these church services. I don't know if you've gotten online and checked out how Christendom is moving away from the orthodox practices that we have been involved in. For instance, the craziness of running up and down the aisles or jumping on lecterns and just screaming crazily and just acting like you're out of your mind. And this is happening in Christian churches. There's one guy that uh, you might see him on the Internet sometime. He, he stands like this, and then people come up to him in the church, and they hold their hands up like this, and they get face-to-face, and they're standing like this. And then the pastor reaches down, grabs him on the torso like he's going to goose him. And he goes, fire! Like that. And go, what is that? And remember I talked to you about the Shekinah glory coming down at Bethel Church. You know if the Shekinah glory showed up, what would happen to the people? They would die. Moses could not see the glory of God and live. Remember that in the Old Testament? And so we are going away from proper doctrine. Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, because if you do, you'll save not only yourself, but your hearers as well. That's why it's important that we know Scripture, that we know doctrine, and we're able to wield it like a sword. Now, some of us have pocket knives. Look, I have a pocket knife. Click, and you bring it out. It's kind of cool. I like this thing. It can cut tomatoes. See how good it is. And that's your sword. Then there's other people that have the switchblade. They can use it quick, and it comes right out, you know, six inches or so. I'm good. And then there's the guy who goes, shing, pulls that thing out, and is able to wield it and use it either to stab, to slice, to beat on top of that, whatever you need to do with the scripture. And I don't mean take the Bible and beat somebody over the head with it. The point of it is we're able to wield the scripture. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. We're able to gently correct those who are going astray. And that's what scripture says we're supposed to do. That's how we're supposed to be involved. But Christendom is going away from that. And we have to stand our ground. You know, I didn't realize this for years. But expository teaching of the scriptures, it's kind of becoming passe, where you actually read a section of scripture, you explain what it means. If you need to go into the language and look at the syntax and how it's all developed there, and then you do some background uh, discovery in the Old Testament and see if there's other New Testament passages that would apply to help with the interpretation, that is being lost. And instead, it's being a topical study, and certainly a topical study that is not based in eschatology, things that are of the future, what's happening. Right now in the men's group on Wednesdays and also in the youth group, we're covering eschatology. And I'm going to cover it again when we get to Matthew chapter 24, as I've told you in the past. And we're going to park there for a little bit. We need to know what's coming, what's right around the corner, and how close are we? Are we like, should we get our tennis shoes on and get ready for the rapture? Or, you know, should we just relax for a minute? Or how should we act? And all of that is in the scripture. And God wants us to know what his plan is. But people want to get away from that. You know why? Because it's frightening. There are a lot of things that are frightening. Get in a car. Get on the freeway. I mean, at night. At 2 a.m. especially. 
you know, that stuff can be frightening. But the Lord wants us to speak the word, speak it boldly, but with gentleness and respect. Inform those who are out there. Teach those who are believers and inform those who are perishing that they need Jesus Christ. This is our task. And if you can't do that specifically, and not everybody can, you support those who do. That's how it's supposed to work. And so we are supposed to maintain this level of holiness in knowing God's word. And as we walk in him, we abide in him, we are holy. And, and you look at this church and going back to the, the parable that's here, the church grows and becomes large. And it has encompassed the entire earth. Our entire world has been influenced by the first advent of Jesus Christ. And we even mark our calendars by it. What year is it? 2019. What happened 2019 years ago? Jesus was here. Is that how long the earth has been around? No, but we split time. We have influence. And the United States was created, I believe, by God. We have been an influence over the entire world because, as I've spoken before, we're like, quote-unquote, a Christian nation, or people consider us throughout the world a Christian nation because most of us in this country are Christians. And there's a move to try to sweep that away, to put that under the rug, like Christianity is no better than any other religion. Of course, we know that that's not true. There is no one like Jesus Christ. He is God in human form. He is the one that raised from the dead, and he's going to come back and get us. Now, some misinterpretations of this particular parable. Who's the one making the bread? It's a woman, right? Do you know what the Jews used to say? And they would have had this in mind. The Jews used to have in this little Jewish prayer book, this prayer. This is the exact prayer. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a woman. Now, if you were a Jew, a leader of the Jew at that time, if a woman was making the bread and there was yeast and you understand, thank the Lord, according to the prayer book, that I'm not a woman and thank the Lord there is no yeast or because yeast is evil. If you put those two together, a woman and yeast, what do you immediately think? It's the woman who causes the evil. And that is such a misinterpretation of Scripture the misogynistic ideas that have been of old. Christ has done more to liberate the woman from the, the foot of men in, in this world. And not all men are like that. I don't want to indict all men, but just humanity in general. And that's part of the curse, by the way. If you remember the curse, they, men and women were co-equal in all ways, in all things they're co-equal, except on how they were created. The woman is more nurturing. The man is, this is right and this is wrong. Just get over it. That's the way things are. It has things in columns and in rows and stacked straight up. And you have to have everything plumb and level and parallel and triangles. And that's all good. And the woman is not like that. A woman is like a fuzzy ball. 
she has all these tentacles going out everywhere and that's how she feels and that's good that's how she was created she's a feeling individual and she balances out the man but at the fall what happened the woman decided I'm going to rule over that guy and I'm going to use everything in my little tool bag to do it and the guy says ain't happening in this life and he rules over her and that's part of the fall and we're always trying to get back as Christians to this co-heir. And so we're to look at women as men. We're to look at women as something sacred in the eyes of God. Someone who has been given to assist men, because we oftentimes need assistance, in actually seeing things from a proper perspective. And also the woman. Sometimes she needs some assistance in seeing things from a proper perspective. And so that's how we're supposed to be. Now, somebody who would misinterpret this would do just the opposite and place woman at a lower level, which is, I believe, anathema, which is accursed. The woman is a co-heir with Jesus Christ. There's neither uh, Greek or barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, woman, man. All are the same in Christ Jesus, and he elevates both men and women. Don't get involved in Islam if you want to be considered equal as a woman to the man there because that is not going to happen. Don't go over and start practicing Hinduism over in India because the woman is nothing more than something to be traded or bargained for. Uh, You want this wife, that's okay. And they are abused in ways that you just can't imagine, not only there but in the rest of the world. And so as Christian men, we're to stand up, we're to defend the women, call them co-equal heirs with Christ, and always be lifting them up. So that's an interpretation that is out there. I just wanted to make you aware of it. But the simplest uh, interpretation that is there is the kingdom of God is going to start small and it's going to grow. The kingdom of God is like that mustard seed, turns into a large plant, and the nations of the earth are blessed because of it. Now these next three parables which are here the treasure the pearl and the net are all meant to be interpreted as one now i want you to notice something when it goes to the pearl in verse 45 you see the first word there again and if you go to verse 47 it says once again so it ties these three parables together the kingdom of heaven in verse 44 is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then his, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, the interpretation for especially these next two is the same. Jesus is just repeating the same parable in a different context. I'll read it, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So these are exactly the same. The question is, who is the merchant? Who is the man? You know, it's not plural, it's singular. Some people would say, well, it's the individual who finds the kingdom of God, sells always has, sells out and buys the kingdom, so to speak, which really doesn't comport with what the Bible teaches. We cannot buy our way into heaven. We cannot purchase anything. We cannot do an act that would get us there. And so I believe that is the improper interpretation of the parable here. But the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and a man found it. The man would be Jesus Christ. And he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all that he had. In other words, it cost him to do this. And he bought the field. 
Now, some people would say, well, that's the nation of Israel. And in fact, it could be. Some people say it's the church. And in fact, it could be. But he considers whether it's Israel or the church, they are of a great treasure. If you take that more personal, God died because you are a pearl. Now, do you guys remember, those of you who have been in San Diego for a long time, SeaWorld. SeaWorld used to have these women from Japan, and they would dive into this water and go down and get oysters. And you would pay a fee, and they'd bring up the oyster, and they'd give it to you, and they'd open it up, and there would be a shiny pearl which would be in there. How many remember that? I'd like to know. Oh, like, okay, well, well, we're kind of getting up there, aren't we? You know, that, that was way back, way back. Of course, I was only one, but I still remember it being back there. <clears throat> but, but this idea that there would be these pearls and the oysters, and by the way, you can buy bags of them online. They'll ship them to you, and you can open up all the oysters you want, have all these pearls, and just get all excited, and it's all wonderful. But you could do that at SeaWorld, and Jesus considered us the pearl. Those who were fallen, those who were harmful to themselves, Jesus said, I want them. It's not the shell, the oyster shell, because those are kind of ugly. But it's the pearl on the inside. And so he sold all that he had to get us. Now, how does that make you feel? He loves each one of us individually. And by the way, when they would pull up those um, oysters and they'd pop out the pearls, all the pearls were different. They could be, some would be this... Uh, translucent color like a um i don't know like a fuchsia color some would be black oh i got a black pearl i think they made a movie with something like that in there you have a black pearl you have a white pearl some would be really big some would be really small and it's just incredible some would be green the the variety that's there and by the way to get a pearl which is you how do you make the pearl you have to put it in a closed environment slam the lid shut, put some sand in there, and cause some abrasiveness to take place. And the Lord says, I'm going to put you in the oyster of the world, close the door, throw some sand in there, and have you go through some trials. And we're going, I don't like it. But when it's all done, you are that pearl. And so what does the pearl do inside the clam? Nothing just sits there it just abides inside not the clam but the oyster abides inside the oyster and god says just abide don't worry god's got everything under control all things work together for good for those who love god and are called according to his purposes matthew chapter 8 verse 28 but for those who don't love god and are not called according to his purposes they are just going through terrible times and they're amounting to nothing And God says, I want to use even the terrible times in your life. And so he spent all he had, which he gave his life, in order to redeem us, not only as a field, but also as a treasure. Then you have verse 47. Once again, which means it's tied to the first two, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. 
The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, is Kim in here? No, she, she's with the kids, I think, on the other side. If She just got back from Israel. Now, in Israel, if you go to uh, the city of Tiberias, which we're never told Jesus went to that city because there were some of the Herods that were there. But if you go to that city, you will see that there are boats that leave from there and you'll actually get in a boat and you'll go across to the other side or you'll go over to uh, where Jesus gave the, uh, not the Olivet Discourse, but the um, Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And they'll take you on a boat and they'll, they'll stop in the middle of the lake right there. And th- you'll be able to see some fishermen. And some of the fishermen, they, some of them have some crude boats. And they'll throw out these nets. And then they drag these nets. If there's a lot of fish, they drag it to the shore. And at the shore, you'll see they'll come up with these gray rubber-made tubs. And they'll throw them on the ground. And they'll start picking through the fish. And they'll throw this one in there and that one in there. And you go up to Tiberius and you start walking through the streets up there. And those fish are in the rubber-made tubs right there. And they're still kind of kicking. And and it smells wonderful walking through the streets through there. And you can buy whatever fish you want. And there's all kinds of fish that come out of there. And Jesus says, it's going to be like that at the end. Now, It goes on, he says, when it was full, the fishermen, verse 48, pulled it up on shore and they sat down. They collected the fish in baskets and threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's saying that those who are also redeemed, the angels are going to be the harvesters. Now, what do they take first, according to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. They take the weeds and they bind them up and they throw them in the furnace. This one is just like it. Where they bring up the fish, they put the fish into the bins and then they take the bad fish and throw it in to the fire. Or they throw them into the water, whatever they would do, but they get rid of them. If the bad fish are not good, they don't want them populating the populating the the Sea of Galilee up there, so they'd get rid of them. And he says, that's how it's going to be at the end of the age. Now, this would be the second coming. Second coming is different than the rapture. As I've been going through with the men and also the youth, I have eight reasons why the rapture is different than the second coming. But this is the second coming where the wicked are taken and they're thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is not a pleasant message, but there's only two places we get to go. The good one, which is pleasant, is heaven. The one which is very unpleasant is hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no way station. There is no place where you spend 10,000 years and work off your sin. That would mean that Jesus Christ and his atonement for sin wasn't quite good enough. And so you have to be flogged for a little while in this place. Some have named it purgatory, but it's just this way station. And then God will resurrect you and everything goes on from there. And you get thrown into the fiery lake or you get to go to heaven. And then it's decided later. Scripture doesn't talk like that. It's simply at the end of the age. There are those thrown in the fiery furnace and those who go to heaven. Everybody should be wanting to go to heaven and not the fiery furnace. Well, what does that mean? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you will go to heaven. That's the way it works. And Jesus is talking about that here. There are some who are going to make it and some who are not. 
And he is the one who casts the net. Last time we were in Africa, we were standing next to the banks of the Nile River. It's quite a sight. And this guy, he has this net made out of fishing line. And it's bulky. It's huge. And I'm watching him. You know, I actually took some pictures of this. And he's kind of wielding it around like this. He's swinging it. And he throws it out there. And this net was huge. I couldn't believe he threw the whole thing. And it landed as a perfect circle. I just go, oh, dude, you're good. And he threw that thing out there, and he pulled it onto shore. That is Jesus. He throws this out, this net, and he brings in everyone, all the fish. And there are those who go to heaven that are collected and those who go to hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's a whole study in itself, hell. Just... By way of description, the person that would have understood hell, the final resting place, not just the grave or the Hades that some people say is a a place of waiting, but Gehenna. There is this valley of Gihon where the the Gihon spring is and kind of goes around in Israel there. And that's where they would dump their trash. And last time I was there, they were still dumping trash and they're still lighting it on fire and there's a putrid smell there and the fires were always burning. And so when Jesus talks about hell, he talks about Gehenna, which they would think of the valley of Gihon right there. And and it's it's the valley between uh, the east end of the temple wall all the way towards the south, the southeast end, and that's where they dump everything. And so that's what people would think about, is that valley when it came to hell. And and people say, jokingly, that, oh, when I go to hell, we're going to have a real party down there. No, everyone's going to be alone. And it's going to be dark, and there's going to be regret. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, all because they would not freely accept the gift of life. And Jesus says it's available for everyone, but there are people who would not, which will lead us into the next section of Scripture here that talks about when we get to the, the next chapter, Jesus not being received in his own country, in his own town of Nazareth. But before we get there, we want to go on to verse, let's see, verse 51. Have you understood these things, Jesus asked? And he's talking to his disciples. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of the house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Simply what he's describing here is he is the teacher, he is the scribe. He's going into the Old Testament describing for them what some passages mean, and he's giving them some new stuff like the kingdom parables. And he's saying both of these, a good teacher will bring these out. And he's, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus, of course. Did they fully understand everything he had to say? No. They were kind of dense. And just like we are kind of dense, it takes several times. But Jesus is bringing them some of this teaching, new treasures and old treasures, combining the Old Testament with the New Testament. Now here, it's not actually the next chapter. It's in verse 53, <coughs> where Jesus had finished these parables, and he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miracles or miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this, or isn't his mother 
mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So what happened to you when you went to your family, if you got saved, and you gave them the gospel? My brother told me, one of my brothers, he said, who do you think you are, Mr. Holier than thou? I'm going, no, you need to go to heaven. You need to repent of your sins. And I don't want to, he didn't want to hear it. Fortunately, he's saved and he's serving in a church. It's wonderful. The other brothers, not so much. One said, no, I just won't take the mark. Oh, you're missing it. Yes, that's not it. You can't just think you're going to not take the mark and go to heaven. You got to believe in Christ. And he didn't want to listen to it. My other brother's like, oh, whatever. And that's kind of how it was. Wasn't really received too well. Went to my father and said, Dad, you you got to accept Jesus Christ. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. And my mom, oh, honey. It's like, don't you guys get this? And to this day, (laughs) my brothers say, oh, don't worry. He's going to try to evangelize you. Yeah, I am. You got a minute? And I'll tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's really not received well in family. I got some family members. Never mind. I'm going to go on with that. But, But this idea, you're not received very well when it comes to going to your own family, your own high school, your own group of friends. What did you think about the kids you grew up with and what they turned out to be? Some of the kids grew up and they turned out to be nothing. Other kids grew up and they're PhD. (laughs) But I would look at them and go, yeah, I know who you are, Mr. PhD. I know what you've done. And the way that it used to be back then, now if I digress a little bit, some of us would wear bell bottoms. And we have the bell bottoms with the striped pants. And we have the big collar on there. And if you got a little older, then you wore a chain And then you got saved, and some of that went by the wayside. But we had this image of all these different people growing up. Now, I want to show you a picture of someone. Okay, Go ahead, show the picture, John. Here it comes. Now, what do you think of this guy? Some little runny-nosed kid on a bike riding around. He thinks he's cool on that little thing, doesn't he? Kind of looks like a geek. Now, if you knew this kid growing up, he turned out to be a geek. <laughs> Do you know who this is? Who? No, everybody thinks it's me. It's not me. <laughs> yes, it's Bill Gates. Now, if you knew him at that age, oh, you're just a little Bill Gates. You think you're big old Mr. Powerful stuff, Mr. Microsoft guy, don't you? That's how he started out. And that's what Jesus was facing. Now, Jesus, when he was an adolescent, his nose might have been bigger than his feet or his feet might have been bigger than his arms. And he's kind of a gangly youth being a carpenter's son. He'd be out there working all the time. And they even said, don't you know this is the carpenter's son? And they're thinking of him in these terms. 
we know who you are. Where did you get all this teaching and wisdom from? You didn't study under any rabbi. You were pounding wood dowels your whole life and cutting boards, and that's what you were doing. And because of that, they rejected him. Now, if we could put your pictures up there, would it look like this? You know, would you have the bell bottoms, the long straight hair, and you know, it's cool, that type of thing? Probably so. And this is what Jesus faced. He was not received by his own hometown. And we know that when he showed up the first time in Luke chapter 4, verse 29, he showed up and he, he tried to do some works there. He proclaimed who he was, and you know what they did. And the way the city of Nazareth is set up, if you ever go there, you, you drive in a bus, and you go there, and you look at the town, and you go, whoa, this is Nazareth. Even today, you look at, whoa, Nazareth. Yeah, and, and then they have this one section. It's like a park that leads up to this hill where there's this cliff. And, of course, they took Jesus up to the cliff, and they were going to throw him off because they didn't receive him. You are just the carpenter's son. That's who you are. And, of course, they didn't want to have anything to do with him that time. And, by the way, he slipped through the crowd. I've always wondered, how do you do that? A mob is moving you up a hill to a precipice to throw you off, and you just walk through the midst. I, I would really like to see how he did that. Was he a wrestler? Do a wrestling slam with people and go? No, I, I think he just, he could have dematerialized or something. Or he just walked right through the midst. It's like parting the Red Sea. He went right through them. I would like to see how that happened. That would be very interesting. But the second time he went there and he couldn't do many miracles. He taught in the synagogue and they were just amazed. They're, who's this kid? We know this kid. Right? I don't know what kind of accent that is, but we know this kid, who this kid is. And they didn't receive him. And then one of the clinchers here, they're so familiar with him and the family, and it's a small town. It's not a big town. It says, isn't this the carpenter's son, verse 55, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Now, if you started doing the math, How many kids in the family? Minimum. Seven kids. (laughs) Bryant's. You know? (laughs) Seven. They have a lot of kids, you know? And it's great. It's wonderful. Mayhem. What kind of table did you have? A carpenter. He probably had a nice uh, dining room table they all sat down at. And, you know, they'd celebrate the Seder time together. It just, it'd be a great time. And Jesus was, of course, the eldest son. Why can't you be more like your brother? You know, something like that. Oh, yeah, he's God. Live up to God's image. Yeah, I I could see that. But he he was the one that was the eldest of all the kids. Now, with that, our fellow believers in the Catholic religion hold that Mary had no other children, that she took a vow of virginity, that... When she was found to be with child, Joseph was going to divorce her quietly, but then the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the Catholics will tell you that's all true, but she never had marital relations with Joseph. Now, when you read this in context, where did these kids come from? Because they're naming the brothers 
and making reference to the sisters and the mother and father. Now, I I actually read this in a, a Catholic website. They go to great lengths to explain away that Mary never slept with Joseph. And they will come up with things like, well, Joseph had children before he was betrothed to Mary, which Jesus would have been the youngest at that point. I don't think that that would have been the case. I think that Jesus was the oldest. And then you have these other brothers, and they try to explain away who James was, because James is his brother, and Judas is here. And they they say, well, you know, just because somebody's called a brother doesn't mean they're a brother. Like, we all call each other brothers, the men. Hopefully you're not calling the women brothers, but you call men, go up to, hey, brother, how you doing? I just saw a guy in Starbucks yesterday. Uh, His name is Rick, and he's a brother. And I say, hey, brother, how you doing? We're brothers, and they say, well, that's what it means. James and Joseph and Judas, they're all brothers, like friends, like family. And then they go on to say, but see, Mary was married to the Holy Spirit. I go, where does it say that in Scripture? And if you went with that logic, well, you had Jesus, who has the bride of Christ, You have the father whose wife is Israel. And then you have the Holy Spirit who is married to Mary. Of course, the father and the son, they have buku wives. The Holy Spirit has just one wife. And where does it say that in Scripture? It doesn't say that in Scripture. And there are are several points that they go through to try to make this case. Do you guys know what Occam's razor is? Occam's razor is in philosophy. When you go to find out the truth of something, usually, more often than not, the simplest answer is the right answer. When you read the scripture here, instead of torturing it to make it mean something it doesn't mean, the simplest answer is they were his brothers and sisters from Mary. Mary and Joseph, they had a good time and they had children. You know, that that's what happened there. The kids came from their relationship and they were blessed. That's the simplest explanation there. If somebody goes into a dissertation that is about three feet long, probably not the truth. And that has held true in philosophy, this Occam's razor idea. And so there are at least seven children in the household. Joseph and Mary, they had relationship. After the birth of Jesus, there's no evidence that Joseph, the husband of Mary, had children prior to being betrothed. There's no evidence that Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And and so we just want to walk away with the simplest explanation that is listed there. But we know that a prophet is is without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. That's the place where he is not. Honored and familiarity, you've heard it before, breeds contempt. His background was unimpressive. He was a carpenter's son. His education, unimpressive. He had no formal biblical or rabbinical training. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. And like I said before, Nazareth wanted to throw him over the cliff. And so they did not believe. And by the way, unbelief is very powerful. You think belief is powerful. Unbelief is very powerful. 
The world was destroyed in the flood because of unbelief. Everyone, eight, were saved. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because they did not believe God that in the day that they ate the fruit thereof, they would surely die. Pharaoh lost all the firstborns in Egypt because of unbelief. And Israel fell in 70 AD because of unbelief. May it be our task to not only believe, but to be established in that faith. And that is my prayer for you. That as we read these parables and what's going on in the scriptures, that we would make those parables part of understanding and a way of life. That we would not forsake it. That we would trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge him. And he will direct our paths to heaven specifically and to him. May the Lord provide for you his grace and his mercy as you realize the goodness that he has shed upon us. And what we're going to do at this point is, as a body, we are going to receive communion. Uh, Patty and Cheryl want to come on up. We're going to sing a song, just kind of reestablishing what we believe about Jesus Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit. And as we have this passed out, we had asked that you would hold on to it and we can all participate in receiving it together. And when the song is finished, Eric will come up and pray for the elements.